You're listening to Al Pastor, the show that helps you love God, love your neighbor, and eat more tacos. I'm your host, Pastor Brian. Welcome to the show. Welcome to those of you that are listening in. I'm going to do something a little bit different today for the podcast. I'm going to throw my hat in the ring and try to do an actual lesson. So what we're going to do is step number one is there is a document that's provided uh, right on Faith Life, and I'm also going to link to a downloadable document if you don't have Faith Life, to where you can download this uh, PDF, and it's just a few pages of a great devotional commentary called the Genesis Record. By the way, I highly recommend it. And what I'm going to do is kind of go through the scripture of Cain and Abel, because there's a lot of questions that that are there. Now, I'm not going to go over everything, okay? We're only going to look at the sacrifices of Cain and Abel and what that looked like. So first and foremost, what we want to do is we want to read some of the text from Genesis chapter 4. And I would, I would, I want to set this up a couple of different ways. This will be a great time for you to actually sit down. Obviously, you can do this on the go if that's your, your MO. However, treat this like a lesson. You can sit down with uh, as a group or as, a, as your family. If you have this document printed out, we're going to go through it. I'm going to read. I'll interact a little bit and provide some further uh, explanation. So first and foremost, let's read God's word which starts uh, Genesis chapter 4. We're going to read just several verses uh, here together. So if you do have your Bibles, open them up. Genesis chapter 4. You can pause it right here if you need to. Pause it, grab your Bible, get those out, and let's start reading in verse 1. The Bible says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived in Borcane and said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. And then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Verse 3, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin lies at the door, and his desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. We're going to stop right there. And so if you have your documents, whether it's digital or print, go ahead and pull those out. And again, this is coming directly out of the Genesis record by an author named Morris. Excellent book. I hope that you will find value in what we're doing today, and perhaps this will cause you to make a purchase of this book. Um, I, again, can't say enough about it. It is just a beautiful book. It'll provide lots of understanding. 
So I'm going to start right off the top in this document on page one, first paragraph. Morris begins to write. He says, in the great proto-evangelic prophecy, God had spoken of a coming conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Adam and Eve were soon to experience the reality of this conflict in the tragic history of their two sons. Let's pause there for a second. What does this mean, proto-evangelic prophecy? Well, this is what the prophecy was in Genesis 3.15, when God talked about the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so now we are seeing this manifest. Next paragraph. The story of Cain and Abel, while in every way to be understood as actual history, is also a parable of the age-long conflict of the two seeds. Cain typifies the seed of the serpent, while Abel is a type of Christ, the seed of the woman. In a secondary sense, Abel represents also those who by faith are in Christ, and who therefore also are in a spiritual sense, seed of the woman. That's good right there. So again, this helps us to frame our understanding of these two stories, right? We're, we're getting... We have the story in chapter 3 of sin, and now we're seeing a manifestation of this first prophecy of two seeds. So you have Cain and you have Abel. While they are real and literal people, and this is actual history, we also see what is known as typology. So Abel is the type of Christ, and Cain is a type of the seed of the serpent. Okay, let's move on. Let's go to the next paragraph. He says, it seems reasonable to infer that after the expulsion from Eden, God had made a gracious provision to continue to commune with man, even though now at a distance. On the basis of his promise of a coming Redeemer, whose shed blood would be the price of redemption, he had shown Adam and Eve that an atonement, notice how that's in air quotes, why? An atonement? means like it's a, it's a type. What was that atonement? It was the covering. So let's, let's go through that. He had shown Adam and Eve that an atonement required the shedding of innocent blood to provide a covering for the guilty. Probably at an appointed time and place, men were able to meet God, first being careful to approach him by means of a proper offering, especially marked by the principle of substitution the innocent for the guilty. Those who worshipped, that is, literally bowed down to do God's will in this way, acknowledged their own guilt and helplessness, as well as their trust in God alone for complete salvation and provision. There was nothing in such a process that would appeal to the physical or the uh, aesthetic mental appetites of man, as contrasted with Satan's appeal to Eve in Genesis 3.6. Hence, it would require the complete subjugation of human pride to the will of God. Now, this, this paragraph is extremely, extremely important. The reason that it is important is because we have embedded within Genesis 3 and 4 the gospel message. And so that th this these chapters are communicating just that. We see an atonement. We see what God has ordained to be able to approach him. 
Now, prior to sin, man was in fellowship with him. Now, because of sin, there has to be a way to approach approach him, and that way to approach him is through the uh, substitution, the principle of substitution, the innocent for the guilty. So let's move on. The heading here, it's the last paragraph on page one, is Genesis 4, 1 and 2. One's attitude of heart towards this matter of approaching and knowing God actually determines his destiny in eternity. If he willingly accepts God's word, approaching him solely on the basis of faith in God's provision, through the shed blood of a Redeemer, God's Lamb, then he is spiritually of the heaven-born seed of the woman, and he is restored to God's presence and fellowship. But if he continues to distort and reject God's word, relying on his own personal merits of, to earn salvation, he is then in effect interposing his own will in the place of God. He is presuming to be as God's, knowing good and evil and consequently becomes the serpent's seed. Wow, that's a lot to sink in there. Isn't that good? Let's go on to the next paragraph. This great twofold division of humanity is perfectly illustrated in the first two sons of Adam. When the first was born, Eve exclaimed, I've gotten a man from the Lord, literally with the Lord. This testimony of praise in itself is in itself sufficient proof that Eve was a believer in the Lord and in the truthfulness of God's promises. Though she had now experienced the suffering associated with childbirth, she had also seen God's faithfulness in giving her a son. This is also the first use of the familiar biblical euphemism for marital intercourse. Uh, Let me just pause there for a second. The word euphemism means like a figure of speech. So it says, Adam knew his wife. Such an expression uniquely emphasizes both the full harmony and understanding of man and wife, one flesh, and also an ideal awareness of God's primeval purpose as implemented through the human capacity for sexual love and reproduction. The name Cain means gotten and is obviously derived from Eve's exclamation of joyful acquisition. The practice of giving names to children associated with some specific event is frequently found. You can find these in Genesis 4.25, Genesis 5.29, and etc., as well as other parts of the Old Testament. It is significant that this phenomenon is found in all of the three main supposed documentary sources, J.E.P. of the Pentateuch, a fact which in itself is strong evidence that all these so-called sources in reality constitute a consistent, unified document reporting real events. Let me just interject here for a second. Um, Some may be aware and some might not. There is a field of biblical studies that uh, highly criticizes the authorship Uh, Genesis, and for that matter, all five books. So when Morris here is referring to these quote-unquote sources, J-E-P, this is the idea that that the Torah was written much, much later. We're talking 
almost 2,000, 2,500 years later after the fact by some men that were in Babylon. Now, this is a false notion. Um, I don't. I would not recommend getting into the mud into this particular topic, although if you have a desire, we certainly can do so. But I just want to clear that up because uh, Morris does a really good job of maintaining the authorship of these books by Moses. And folks, by the way, Jesus really, really settled it. Um, Jesus attributed these books to Moses himself. So that's super simple. Case closed. So let's move on to the next uh, paragraph. It's the third paragraph from the bottom on page two. It starts with the word Eve. Eve not only was thankful for a child, but also that the Lord had enabled her to beget a man. This seems to be a further expression of faith that her babe would grow to manhood. It is possible that she had hoped this might be the promised deliverer, even though he was not in a specific biological sense a seed of the woman. As a matter of fact, he was of that wicked one, which is referred to in 1 John 3.12, and thus was the first in the long line of a serpent's seed. So here's our takeaway from this paragraph. Eve believed that the the fulfillment of the promise from Genesis 3.15 in this child very well could have been that fulfillment. That's what he's saying. Let's move on. Cain's younger brother, Abel, was truly in the household of faith, however. He was the very first mentioned in the long line of men of faith recorded in Hebrews 11. See verse 4. He is called righteous and a prophet. So I would encourage you, stop, look at Hebrews 11.4. In fact, you know what? We're going to take a moment and we're going to do that. So let's let's look at Hebrews 11.4. Let me read this to you. The Bible says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, being dead, still speaks. Next paragraph. Such testimonials from none other than the Lord Jesus can only mean that Abel was a man who believed and obeyed God's word with righteousness thus imputed to him. That means that it was credited to him on his account based on his faith. That's what the word imputed means. It's a, it is a transfer. As a prophet, he must also have received God's word by divine revelation and preached it by divine enablement. But Cain refused and disobeyed. If you're still following along on the handout or the, the document, I'm starting now on page number three. It says, Abel, or Abel, was Eve's second son, born sometime after Cain. Some exegetes, that word exegete simply means interpreters of the Bible, commentators, or scholars. So some exegetes have thought the absence of a separate record of his conception implies that Abel was conceived at the same time as Cain. This is quite unlikely, however, for the record should have said so if that were the case. Next paragraph. The name Abel means vapor or vanity and suggests that 
By the time of Abel's birth, Eve had become thoroughly impressed with the impact of God's curse on the world. God had indeed made the creation subject to vanity. Let's unpack that for a second. Abel's name means vapor or vanity. And so what the author is saying is that by the time Abel was born, Eve had been witnessing the cycle of life and death within um, God's natural order. That means animals, plants. And so by this time, she has an understanding and there's a greater impact as a result of sin. So she names Abel vapor. Isn't that what the Bible says? Our life is but a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. The uh, King Solomon himself writing in, in Ecclesiastes, when he reflects on life, he calls it vanity uh, because of the swiftness and the quickness of life here on earth. So this is what this reference is to. And so I think it's very, very important that we appreciate this fact so quickly within the narrative of Genesis. Let's go on to the next paragraph. It says, as the boys grew, if you're following along. As the boys grew, Cain became a farmer and Abel a shepherd. Both were honorable occupations. Cain's fruits providing food and Abel's sheep providing clothing for the family. In addition, it is probable that the sheep were also used for sacrifice. The lesson which God had taught Adam and Eve was not to be forgotten. Let's stop there. What was the lesson that God taught Adam and Eve? Okay, I want to make sure that we have a good understanding of this. God covered them. They went and covered themselves with fig leaves. That would not suffice. God went and covered them with, the Bible says, coats of skin. Okay? So this, this is the lesson that God had taught Adam and Eve. In order for you to approach God, there has to be a covering. And you can't use the covering of yourself or of your own works or your own righteousness. In other words, the things that you think can cover your sins. It has to be God's way now because sin has changed everything. So in order to approach God, you need a covering. And so God provided that covering with coats of skin. And by the way, it's really, really fascinating because you see you will see later on in the scripture on how God instructs the priests as they are to approach him in the tabernacle. They're going to have those same coats of skin, by the way. So let's, let's look at this, this line again. The lesson which God had taught Adam and Eve was not to be forgotten. Atonement, okay? The word atonement means covering. Required the shedding of of blood. Now, as a side note, the next paragraph that says starts with man was not authorized. Um, there is debate, you know, how soon did Adam and Eve uh, begin to eat uh, the flesh of animals, like, in other words, having a carne asada or a barbecue. Here's what Morris says. <clears throat> man was not authorized until after the flood to use animals for food. And you can read that. Um, in these verses that he provides, Genesis 1.29, 2.16, 3.19, and 9.3. As the population grew, Abel's sheep would no doubt have been available by trade or purchase to anyone who wished to use for sacrifice or clothing. So understand this. As the population grew, 
We that's a I, I understand that's a whole other topic, but there are some fascinating things about the rate of the population and the explosion and and some awesome calculations with that. But Abel's sheep, he was a provider of sheep not for food, but it was by trade or purchase with the goods that you would do if you were like in ag- agriculture, and so you would need this this uh, uh, sheep out of his flock to provide a sacrifice. And, by the way, for clothing. Isn't that awesome? All right, second to last paragraph on page 3, Genesis 4, 3 through 5. Morris writes, There seems to have been a regular time and place at which men were allowed to meet God. Possibly the place was at the door of the entrance of the garden where the cherubim guarded the way of the tree of life, Genesis 3, 24. Adam and Eve had been driven out of the garden, away from the presence of God. By God's grace, however, and in view of his promised Redeemer, he still allowed men to approach him under these conditions, there to hear his word and to receive his guidance. Let me unpack that a little bit. Um, the question that sometimes come up is, how, how long did the Garden of Eden survive after And most likely the Garden of Eden, well, I shouldn't say most likely, it was definitely uh, wiped out in the flood, okay? But prior to that, as this uh, gradual deterioration started to happen as a result of the fall, there still was a tree there, and there still was an entrance that was guarded by the cherubim. Now, I want to draw your attention. Um, if you have, and a little commercial, if you have not seen the Bible project on this particular motif, which is of the temple, I highly encourage you to do it because the tabernacle and the temple are in essence, a recreation of the garden of Eden. Now imagine, I want you to imagine if you were to go to a place, Adam and Eve, right? And you wanted to meet God, what is standing in your way? There's a cherubim that guards it. Think of the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. What was placed over the Ark of the Covenant? It was a cherubim. You would have to approach God. God said, I will meet you in the Holy of Holies right where the cherubim are guarding. Very interesting. So we have the same principle that is right here. This is what this paragraph um, is really communicating to us. So here... I like the way that Morse does this because he's using the word, he says, possibly, okay? Please notice that, possibly the place. So I want you to, again, imagine this in your mind. We need to approach God. We don't have the same fellowship that we had before because it's been broken by sin, right? So now, instead of having this continuous presence where God dwells in the garden. We walk and we talk with God. We hear his voice regularly. Sin has messed that up. And so now you have to provide a sacrifice in order to meet with God. And where would you do that? Well, it is where God determines that he will meet you. This is the way that it was set up in the old covenant, even through Sinai. God says, I will meet you here at this time, and at this place, and in this way. So imagine Adam and Eve now saying, we need need to approach God. We cannot forsake this fellowship that he's offered to us. How would they approach him? 
they would approach him in the same way that they were they were covered in their atonement. So they would provide a sacrifice, most likely there at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. Wow. If that doesn't if that doesn't kind of float your boat, I don't know what will, folks. But this is beautiful, really, really beautiful. Let's go on to the next paragraph, okay, which is the last paragraph on page three. He says, it seems probable that Adam and Eve had shown love to both their sons and had instructed them alike. So it is difficult to understand what caused Cain and Abel to assume different attitudes and characters. Gradually, however, these innate differences begin to manifest themselves. Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. This is according to Genesis 5.4. Hence, it may be that Cain and Abel had had brothers and sisters for many years prior to the events described in this chapter. They were both grown men, and their parents had given them divine instructions to multiply so that this indeed seems more likely than not. All right, we're on page four now, first paragraph. It says, It is therefore quite probable that the offerings described in these verses were not the first ones offered by these two brothers. Rather, it must have become a regular practice at certain definite periods of time. And I like what he says here. Watch this. Possibly on the Sabbath. (laughs) The words in Hebrew, literally, at the end of days, seem to suggest this. Isn't that interesting? Since this was the first occasion on which Cain received a rebuke, it would be inferred that his previous offerings had been acceptable to God. Let's unpack that for a second, okay? You might say, well, hold on for a second, Pastor. We don't have anything in the Bible about sacrifice or offerings or anything of that nature until we get into Moses. But that's not quite true, okay? Remember Melchizedek? And he met Abraham. This is 400 and, uh, and, well, 430 years before the law. He was a priest of the Most High, wasn't he? In In the city of Jerusalem, Salem. And he brought out bread and wine, and there were sacrifices that were involved. And so we sometimes have the misconception that the this sacrificial system was only instituted at Sinai. No, it begun right here in the garden. Now, we can't prove if this is the exact method and on the exact day, but boy, wouldn't that be amazing? I like the way that he's framing this. Now, let's go on to the next paragraph because it's a little bit of a disclaimer of what we're talking about. He goes on. He says, the Bible does not actually say specifically whether such sacrifices had been commanded by God or whether the practice arose merely as a spontaneous expression of thanksgiving and worship. If it was the latter, however, it's difficult to understand why God would not have been as pleased with an offering of Cain's fruits as with the offering of Abel's slain lamb. Okay, let's pause there. Here's what he's saying, in other words. If these offerings were just an expression of thanksgiving and worship, there would be no problem with Cain's offering. However, if there was a command and an institution that was involved, like this is the way 
then this makes much more sense. So let's continue reading. I'm in the middle of the paragraph. He says, the entire occurrence can only be really understood in the context of an original revelation by God regarding the necessity of substitutionary sacrifice as a prerequisite to approaching God. Such revelation was almost likely given at the time God provided coats of skins for Adam and Eve, and then banished them from his presence, providing, however, specific means by which they could still commune with him at certain times on the basis of a similar sacrifice. Wow, that is really good. All right, next paragraph. It starts with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had no doubt duly instructed their children in this provision, and for a long time, they heeded and followed it. Cain himself had probably purchased from Abel a sheep from his own sacrifice each time they came to the appointed place. There came a time, however, when Cain began to resent this situation and finally decided to rebel against it. There seemed no good reason to him why he should be indebted to his young brother each time. His own fruits were every bit as valuable and at least as attractive and useful to man as were Abel's animals. Next paragraph. Therefore Cain, in presumption and rebellion, finally would no longer accept one of his brother's sheep, but instead brought the fruit which his own efforts, notice the language here, his own efforts, had coerced from the earth God had cursed. He offered these fruits possibly in a spirit of carelessness, unconcerned for the will of God. Possibly even a spirit of pride in what he had been able to produce despite God's curse on the ground, or possibly in a spirit of rebellion against the implication that his nakedness before God required a covering which could only provide by the shedding of blood. At any rate, his heart was not right before the Lord, and his offering was not in faith, as was his brother's. Therefore, God rejected his gift. Let me pause here for a second. I'm really hoping and praying that by now you're you're making some mental connections and you're seeing some clarity and you're like, wow, now I'm beginning to understand. That's the point of what we're doing here. Page four, first paragraph up on the top. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it, he being dead, yet speaks. Abel offered with the firstlings of his flock the fat pieces thereof, a practice that would long afterward be incorporated into the actual Mosaic law of the peace offering. All of the fat is the Lord's, according to Leviticus 3.16. Cain's glance, a better rendering, than countenance, had been haughty, but now it fell and became bitterly angry. Though perhaps up to this point in life he may have seemed outwardly pious and obedient toward God, this incident finally revealed the inward pride and resentment that must have been festering in his heart for some time. 
The resentment was directed not only at God, but also at his brother Abel. Abel was an outward symbol that the, of the fact that Cain's works were not adequate to get him into God's presence, since he must obtain Abel's sheep for this purpose. Let's pause there for a second. That is profound, folks. This is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? It is by grace through faith that we are saved. It's not by works. What was the mistake that Adam and Eve did? Their works, their fig leaves, it was how they wanted to approach God. So let's read that, that line again. It says, Abel was an outward symbol of the fact that Cain's works were not adequate to get him into God's presence, since he must obtain Abel's sheep for this purpose. But Abel, in addition, was a prophet. Let's pause there, because you might be wondering, what do you mean Abel's a prophet? Well, that comes from Hebrews 11.4, because the Bible says he still speaks. So Abel, in addition, was a prophet, and thus quite possibly had discerned this weakness in his older brother, and had been warning him about it. This situation had finally become quite intolerable for such a proud individual as Cain. Now, folks, <clears throat> just like I tell you with me, you gotta, you got to consider it. We're, we are reading things that are somewhat speculative, okay? We can draw some really, really strong conclusions and inferences, but I really like the way that this author is putting flesh and bones on the text. Now, this, none of this here is like, this is the gospel message, right? It's not. Please understand that. But this, this picture that's being drawn here seems very highly likely. All right, let's move on. Genesis uh, 4, 6 through 8. And we are uh, on, on towards the bottom of page 5, okay? He says, in spite of Cain's bitter anger, God graciously promised that he would yet be accepted. That's the grace, right? If he would only do well, which undoubtedly meant to obey his word. If he continued in rebellion, however, sin, and this is the first use of the word in scripture, was crouching at his door. I want to pause there. You just you just received a little nugget there. The first mention of sin. Would that be worthy of you highlighting or underlining in your Bible? I think it would be. And notice, sin was crouching at his door. He would truly become a seed of the serpent, using sin as his obedient servant. So compare the similar, similar terminology in Genesis 3.16 and 4.7 to oppose the revealed will of God. Wow. Next paragraph. Cain, however, rejected God's warning and elected to continue in his own way. Abel, as God's first prophet, surely counseled urgently against this decision as Cain talked with Abel, his brother. But the seeds of pride and envy and hatred bore their bitter fruit. The enmity of the old serpent completely poisoned Cain's soul when God would not receive his gift and it would not rest until Abel's blood was spilled. As they talked together out in the field with Abel, no doubt urging repentance while Cain accused God of petty favoritism 
and his brother of self-righteous presumption. The argument finally became so bitter that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. See 1 John 3.12. There's even a suggestion that the murder was premeditated. Although the Masoretic text does not include this, let me pause there because you say, well, what in the world is that? The Masoretic text is um, one of the um, systems of, or sources of interpretation and translation for God's word um, that we get like the King James from, and it's called the Masoretic or majority text. So this is what that reference is to. So let me read this sentence again. There is even a suggestion that the murder was premeditated. Although the Masoretic text does not include this, certain other ancient versions, Samaritan and the Septuagint, Samaritan and the Septuagint are earlier translations that were written in Greek. And um, my mind is slipping me. I'm trying to think of the Samaritan Pentateuch if that was written in uh, Hebrew or not. But anyway, they indicate this. When Abel talked with his brother, he proposed that they go out into the field and to continue the conversation, okay? Thus giving him the opportunity to murder him without being restrained by others. Think about that. In any case, it is apparent that the first slight entrance of sin into the world through the mere eating of a forbidden fruit, had quickly resulted in much more bitter fruit, namely the crime of fratricide. Holy cow, why am I having a hard time saying that? You're, you probably can say it better than me. Fratricide. That is the murdering of your brother. That's, that's a fancy way. Like if we say infanticide, that means the killing of infants, right? Fratricide is the killing of your brother. Okay, here's the last last couple sentences or last sentence. The seed of the serpent was quickly striking at the seed of the woman, corrupting her first son and slaying her second, thus trying to prevent the fulfillment of the proto-evangelic promise right at the beginning of human history. In case you're wondering, what is proto-evangelic? Think of the word prototype, right? That's, um, it, it, it's kind of like a rough draft. Here's the prototype. We, we're not going to fully develop this product yet, but we have a prototype so that you can see it, you can touch it, you can feel it, you can understand eventually what this product is going to be. So it's in this sense that these verses early on in Genesis are called the proto-evangelic promise, because it's the gospel that we see in prototype form. So I hope this helps you. Um, I hope you find value out of it. Um, you know, uh, I'm just in awe of God and God's word. And I know sometimes we might wonder like, yeah, what was going on with Cain and Abel and all these other things? Well, folks, what I'm providing here for you, and again, there's you can get this document on Faith Life. I also have the document embedded as a downloadable link. 
uh, in the description of this podcast as well. Um, go through, take the time. I also want to encourage you with this, not in a, not in a demeaning way by any means. And I know sometimes I could come across that way and Lord knows me and, and I need his forgiveness daily. Um, but we honestly do. We, we can spend our time doing a lot of things, folks, you know, and before we know it, an hour or two passes and I'm not saying that you've got to be locked up in an ivory tower all day studying, but I hope that at least with this particular study that you can get away in a corner, get away with God, and just look at the, just the omnipotence, the, the, the genius of God from the foundation of the world. That's who Jesus was. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And just stand in awe and majesty of who he is. And if I can somehow, some way, just influence you into that direction, and maybe you stop the scroll of the cat videos or whatever it is, guys, you know, um, we all fall short. But um, I love you, appreciate you, I'm praying for you, and uh, I hope this will be a blessing. So we'll see you on another episode. Thank you for listening to Al Pastor with Brian Overturf. If you found value in this, please subscribe and get updates. Most places podcasts are available. We're right here on Anchor FM through Spotify. Also on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and iHeartRadio. I hope you'll tune in for the next episode. Until then, we'll see you later.